I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I have been a diet soda fiend since I came out of the womb. But I decided earlier this year that I was going to go cold turkey for 2023 and focus on things that are nutritionally beneficial. I'm going to be honest, it's been rough. I miss flavor. Enter Olipop, a soda alternative available in a range of flavors, including vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, classic grape, strawberry vanilla, cream soda, and cherry cola. They also have a Dr. Pepper dupe called Dr. Goodwin and a brand new Sprite dupe lemon lime flavor. I swear it's not recency bias. The lemon lime is my favorite, but I also really love the cream soda and I also do love the root beer. But it's not just the taste for me. Two out of three Americans say they suffer from digestive issues and 95% of Americans don't get the daily recommended amount of fiber. Olipop is tackling both of these issues with a drink that tastes just like soda, but packs a ton of nutrients into every can. Its functional ingredients combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. I've worked out a special deal for Shut Up Evan listeners. Receive 25% off your order. Go to drinkolipop.com slash ERK25 or use code ERK25 at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash E-R-K 25, like the number 25, not spelled out 25. Also, I'd recommend getting their sampler pack because it allows you to try all the various flavors and find out which one is best for you. Which one, which two, which three, maybe you'll like them all. Olipop can also be found in over 20,000 stores across the country, including Walmart, Target, Kroger, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. So what are you waiting for? Get sipping. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, hello and good morning. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Uh, breaking news, Caitlyn Jenner has unfollowed daughter Kendall Jenner on Instagram, fueling speculations that they had a falling out. I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, <laughs> I want to talk today about, before we get into today's subject, I did want to get your thoughts on Mother, uh, not the 2017 Darren Aronofsky film, but the term Mother, which is something we, you and I, and many queer people ascribe to a certain subset of women in 
in popular culture, both characters and actresses. Yes. There's a meme of Kenya Moore from The Real Housewives of Atlanta saying that this is a potential mother. And I think that sort of took off. I, I, I don't think that's the origin of mother. Do you have any thoughts on like where this emerged from? This is a total guess, but I assumed that it came out of drag culture or like ballroom culture where you have the mother of a house or a drag mother. And then of course you had RuPaul's Call Me Mother. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which predates what, but I feel like that's what really propelled it into the mainstream. That's my guess. I feel like over the last couple of months, like the term has really taken off as like something ascribed specifically to actresses and to characters that we love. Um, and it also seems to generally be like actresses of a certain age. However, Sarah Michelle Gellar is having a moment right now where mm-hmm. she's uh, being called mother at a lot of press events, being shouted at, told that she is mother, and then being asked about it in interviews. And then and then tagging Instagram in her stories, asking, where is the mother GIF? And tagging you. Yeah, I mean, we, we need a, a mother GIF. Um, <laughs> you know, I've never said GIF until right now. Do you say GIF or GIF? I don't really say it out loud, mm. but I guess I would say GIF. Fair. But then I'm like... I would match, but I would like match the person I'm in conversation with. Yeah, that's nice. So yeah, but all of a sudden I feel like it's something people are like really utilizing a lot. And recently, uh, some heterosexual podcasters that do a survivor podcast that we listen to sometimes, um, they ascribed one of the new female cast members on the upcoming season of survivor as mother. And I couldn't help but feel a little gatekeepery about like watching mm-hmm. like cis straight men calling someone mother, especially when it's like that is not mother. Like, oh, okay, I have an example. So Sarah Michelle Geller was asked about her LGBTQ plus fans mm-hmm. on her press tour and gave a really great response about how like she feels like she is an honorary member of the community because this is the community that has supported her for, for so long in her career, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that is an example of like, that's something that she said something that I would, you know, would grant her keys to the motherland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on like, I don't know, is this a term that anyone can use? It feels like the kind of term, and I feel like we've seen this many times with sort of viral speak, that it reaches a point of saturation that it does cross over from gay Twitter into mainstream. And it's at that point that it dies. That's the yeah. Facebookification of like viral speak, I would say, where seeing this particular instance of mother being used, I thought, okay, I have to come to terms with the fact that mother is dead. It's true. Also, I was thinking too, something else that I think took off was Mother Lake which became a big uh, talking point on Twitter. Again, I don't know the origin of any of this shit, but basically, yeah, the idea was that like when a female star that we love is serving, it was that she took a dip in Mother Lake. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of like expanded into like uh, a whole culture around Mother Lake. But to your point, it's like, I wonder how, when these things sort of die. Like for me, I know like I used to do my six foot five inch Lee Pace on Instagram and then it just sort of reached a point of like ubiquity where I'd done it so many times. I was like, it just, it lost its edge. And I'm wondering if like everything will experience that. 
But then sometimes I'm sort of like, I'll double down on something. Like lens is something that like, I will always say, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it irritates so many people, I'm never going to re reverse course on that. But mother, especially as someone who's like writing Instagram captions quite a lot, I do feel like this hesitation recently where I'm like, not everything can be mother anymore. No, it can't. The bar is so low for motherdom at this point because of its saturation that it has lost all meaning. Yeah. In the same way that a, a sleigh or a serve in many ways has lost meaning because we ascribe it to totally. ascribe to the, the most basic of people on television. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the ship has sailed on Mother, but I do think that we're a little out to sea at the moment, and I'm wondering where we go from here. Think about Queen for it. Like, we used to say Queen. She's Queen. She's uh -huh. an icon. Like, those, those have sort of been replaced by Mother, and I feel Mother will be replaced by something else in due course. What do you think it's going to be? Well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here today. <laughs> <laughs> but when the new when the new term arrives, please let me know if I don't find it quickly enough because I want to make sure I'm on it fast. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to touch down on was this recent article in The Cut. Uh, it's the second big viral article from The Cut and the second time we're talking about a Cut article uh, here on Shut Up Evan. The last one was the Nepo Baby uh, article, which spawned so much discourse online. And interestingly enough, that article was sort of born from pre-existing discourse and then sort of became like the definitive like piece on Nepo Babies, at which point we we kind of decided that like the conversation had ended. I feel like it's dissipated since that article mm. um it comes back like, well i think that the i think that the nepo babies stamped it out yeah they were like we're done yeah however i will say Haley bieber wearing the shirt that said nepo baby to use a term we were just speaking about like that was not the serve that i think that she thought it was <laughs> Like, I think she was styled in that shirt. She is not mother enough to wear that. She's not even mother-in-law enough to no, wear no, that. No, 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 no. Yeah, she's nowhere near. So, but I, but I, yeah, I do think I, on the whole, the Nepo conversation has ceased. I do think the emergence of Apple Martin, um, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow's daughter, is like a thing that's happening. But I think that she'll, I have a feeling she'll be able to move beyond being perceived as a Nepo baby and become a legitimate, just young star that people are watching. Is Apple emerging? Yeah. 18 years old. So I think like she's beginning her, her career. She has an Instagram account. I did find it. It's Apple Martin. How many followers do you think Apple Martin has? <laughs> the Apple has fallen from the tree. <laughs> How many followers do I think that Apple Martin has? Well, you say you had to find it. I would, I would hazard to guess and I'm notoriously bad at guessing this, 17.5 thousand. 17 point, like 17 comma, wait, wait, tell me that, Matt. 17.5 thousand. 17, 17 and a half Oh, 17 and a half thousand. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, uh, you are far off. She has 1,569 oh. followers. And it's real. It's real. Is Gwyneth a follower? Uh, her account is private, so I can only see... Mm. Our mutuals, which are and you're not following Gwyneth. 
am I? I am following Gwyneth, but she's not listed among this. I have okay. Emma Roberts, Sasha Spielberg, Sasha Seinfeld, and Lauren Santo Domingo. By the way, Sasha Seinfeld and Sasha Spielberg. I, I just, you know, the Sasha verse grows. Okay, I Sasha am going. Fierce. Sasha Pierce. I am going to follow her. Which will, oh, I have to request. I was going to say that will bring up to 1570, but I'm, I'm requesting. Okay, let's circle back on this and see if Apple Martin accepts my request. <laughs> let's see. Do you think she will? I doubt it. Wow. Nothing against you, but with such a low follower count, it seems like she's trying to keep it friends only. Okay, we'll circle back on this. Anyway, so this new article, this new viral article, it's called How to Text, Tip, Ghost, Host, and Generally Exist in Polite Society Today. So basically, it's a list of like over 100 what they're calling new rules. And I do think an article like this is extremely necessary because society has changed so much over the last few years, um, many of which uh, many of those changes are spurred by COVID and some of them just in changes to technology or just how we go about living our lives that I do think it's nice to have a piece like this come out. Um, it's my understanding that there were lots of contributors to this piece. So it wasn't like coming from one person. And I do think that was to the advantage of the piece because the piece is very wide ranging. It's sometimes like quite serious and practical. It's other times a bit more acerbic. Uh, and so I, I think it is able to cover a lot of ground. Have you read this article? Yeah. And what was your immediate reaction after reading it? Uh, I thought it was necessary, but I'm not sure that it completely hit the mark for me. Mm. I felt like there were some confusing rules and some rules that maybe were flipped on the perspective that I thought they should be. It seems like a lot of the rules are accommodating the annoying people. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in several of them that I, I wanted us to like speak on, which is, okay, so rule number 110, it says, saw someone shoplifting? No, you didn't. And then it says, ditto for jumping the turnstile. Now, I totally agree about jumping the turnstile. I feel like that is like extreme care and behavior. Seeing someone shoplifting, like here's my question. I understand the inclination of saying that, which is that like, don't get involved in you you don't know why that person is stealing it maybe they need it blah 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 i do think you should call out shoplifting when you see it i understand that there's nuance here right because there are going to be some circumstances in which it doesn't matter or you don't need to get involved and i also think there's a kind of person who like salivates at the opportunity to do something like this but as far as like the new rules go i think it's strange to suggest that people turn a blind eye to shoplifting Agreed. I think there's, I mean, they're doing this on purpose to get people talking about it. But, you know, they're, they're, they're specifically leaving nuance out of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Okay, the other one I really wanted to chat about, because I have strong feelings about this, is tipping. Um, and I have been fascinated mm. by the changes in tipping culture and how there's sort of not a unanimous belief around it. That's, again, why I think an article like this is really important. Because, for instance, uh, delivery culture has become so much more ubiquitous. I mean, like, when I was a kid, the only things you got delivered were pizza and Chinese food. And now it's like, you can get anything delivered, especially here in New York City. And then there's this new culture where when you go to pick up a coffee uh, at, you know, a coffee shop, they ask for a tip. There's also the question around if I pick up my food 
Uh, if I do carry out, should I be tipping? And again, these are things I've never known or how much to tip on a drink at a restaurant because, you know, some of these New York City restaurants, you're getting like a $25 cocktail. And mm -hmm. it's like, are you expected to tip 20%? The answer, according to the cut, is yes, you are, which is interesting. But, okay, so it says here, at coffee shops, coffee carts, cafes, and bodegas, tip at least 20%. Even though their pay isn't as tip-dependent as waiters, the average salary for a barista in New York is just above minimum wage. And like waiters, baristas are often preparing complicated orders in a tense environment. If your order is only coffee, you may tip $1. If you're buying an item that involves no preparation, like a bottle of water, a muffin, it is acceptable, though miserly, to not tip. I don't love this. What are your thoughts? Again, no nuance, because... If I'm to tip, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't, but if I'm to tip a dollar on a coffee that cost $3, that is a huge percentage tip. Yes. And I think that there are other circumstances where it's like, you know, yes, baristas and servers are making minimum wage or less, but so might the person buying the product. Mm -hmm. And so are they expected to go into their wages to, t to tip 25% on? Uh, I, I think that the nuance is how much effort does it take to prepare this thing? And let's not forget the importance of service. I mean, I, like, I am a big fan of tipping for good service. I'll tip on any service, but I'm a big fan of tipping above and beyond on good service. I think my issue with this is that the majority of the places that I go to get my coffee, um, I'm getting iced coffee. So they're grabbing a cup, filling it with ice and pouring the coffee in. So for me, in terms of like the service that's being required for my order, because the one thing that this says is uh, baristas are often preparing complicated orders. That might be the case. That's not the case for me. Mm -hmm. And I also think that like, there's a lot of shame that people have in open in like having this conversation that we're having right now and to say that like I don't think one should tip because you can sound a certain way to be like it can sound ungenerous but to be clear here I'm aligned with you I am happy to tip I'm more than happy to tip on good service uh and I think it encourages like a better ecosystem of you know the, uh, that we live in I just don't understand this thing with like when I go pick up my iced coffee and my iced coffee is already $5, which is so overpriced, especially because it's filled with ice instead of coffee. It's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I got a gift card to Blue Bottle recently, and it's, you know, they're doing a service over there. They do a pour over. Uh -huh. I appreciate a pour over. Like, it's, it's a performance. It's a performance, yes. And, and it honestly requires that they, they don't just, like, set something up. They have to be there, blah, blah, blah. So obviously I'm happy to tip. I will say, however, though, that the pour over is $6. It's more money than the coffee because of that effort. And so I guess I just wonder how much can we acknowledge the fact that sometimes the, the service is built into the price at these places. You know what would encourage a better ecosystem? Paying people a living wage. That would do it. Now, the other thing that this article suggested that was when you go and get pickup, that you should be tipping. It says, when picking up takeout at a restaurant, it's easy to understand why you might not tip anything, but you must tip at least 10%. A takeout order interrupts the flow of the other work required of servers and hosts who are dependent on tips. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with this. Mm -hmm. I feel like, again, maybe I'm an asshole. I feel like part of why I go and do pickup and schlep myself out 
of the house to go and get it is because I'm like, I don't want to pay the delivery fee Mm -hmm. and I want to get a walk-in and I feel like I'm coming to you. Um, I'm obviously paying for what I bought. It's saying here that I'm interrupting the flow of work. It's like, this is the work. I'm ordering food. What are your thoughts on this? Like, do you, are, are you someone that would be prone to tip? Because, you know, you mentioned the fact that we're talking about service. There is no service required in ordering takeout. Yeah. So I used to be a no tipper on pickups and I've changed that. I am now a 10% tipper on pickups and not because of this article. I arrived at that conclusion myself, which I I feel quite validated by this article in this case. And there's no particular reason except a little guilt because in most cases when I am picking up, I am interfacing with a server and I know that they know that I haven't tipped and I feel bad about that. I can't fully explain why except that they are doing a job it's just so minimal that i do feel okay 10 percent. sometimes though the pickup is a big order and it's like 10 percent on that is really expensive i guess what we're all getting at is like just it's fucking expensive to live in this world right now yeah yeah that's <laughs> so true but i don't know i hear what you're saying and i understand the guilt thing i guess my question that i would put out there like this article aside if I'm someone that does pick up and doesn't tip, am I an asshole? I don't think you're an asshole. I think an asshole shows up, grabs the food, and is rude to the server. Well, that's not me. Exactly. I mean, I can't speak. I'm not in the service industry. But I imagine that it's so common that people are used to it. Are they okay with it? I don't think they are. My friends who are servers have talked about this, that you should tip on a pickup. And so that has reinforced this idea of me continuing to tip on a pickup. And so I I see it kind of from both sides. And so to just to cleanse myself, I'm tipping. But can I pause it like, okay, so say you go to the grocery store and you're dealing uh, with uh, the person who's not only ringing you up, but sometimes that same person is backing up all your stuff. Or in some instances, there's a separate person who's backing your stuff. That is a huge service that they're doing for you um, and requires a skill set, right? And like figuring out which things go Mm -hmm. where, making sure the eggs aren't crushed, etc., they're not being tipped. I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of those people are making a minimum wage. So why is it applicable in the case of a barista, that service industry, but not something like a grocery store? Here's a problematic question. Would you tip based on your level of attraction to the server? No, I am someone who, like truly not. I mean, I enjoy the eye candy, obviously. No, I'm someone who, uh, just like the disposition of the service worker matters a lot to me, but mm. I'm also of the mindset of like, their disp- disposition is largely like guided by my disposition. So I'm the kind of person where it's like, I will make the effort to like have a great experience and in the hope that they will match me. Mm. While also recognizing that like, they might've dealt with an asshole right mm-hmm. before I got there. You know, Mm -hmm. so, but no, I feel like uh, just friendliness to me is the apex. Hotness from a barista, I don't need. I I mean, it's like I get hotness on the subway. Fair. Well, I just checked. Apple Martin has not followed me back just yet, Uh, but we will stay tuned to that. Let's throw to our interview with the talented, charming, and devilishly handsome Ben Aldridge. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best-kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. 
I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Genes Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Genes deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan. Well, Ben, I'm really excited to have you here. Particularly excited because I got to see the movie. I have so much that I've wanted to offline with you about, but you did not respond to my text messages and my attempt to offline about it. So thankfully, we'll bring it over to the pod. Um, but first of all, hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And yeah, as as I said, I didn't know it was you texting me. So it was- How many people were you giving your number to? Because I mean, <laughs> you know, she's single. Um, <laughs> no, 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 not that at all. Just that like, if, if a no number comes through, I'm very wary, mm-hmm. very wary. And I did send you Casey and the Sunshine Band because it's a big theme. Yes. A big motif mm-hmm. within the movie Knock at the Cabin, which we'll be talking about today to to some extreme because I just was watching M. Night Shyamalan was on the Graham Norton show with Sarah Michelle Gellar, mind you. Of course. Yes. You're and hero, your queen. And he spoke about the fact that he doesn't think the endings of his movies should be revealed ever. Because the question was around sort of like, what's the wait period with which we can spoil, you know? Mm. And M. Night was like, you should never spoil. Using him as my guidepost here, that makes this conversation especially difficult because... For anyone out there that saw the trailer for Knock at the Cabin and thought, okay, they just gave the whole movie away in the trailer. <laughs> Which they did, kind of. <laughs> you think so? Well, they gave a lot of it away. I don't agree with you at all. Okay, that's good. That's really good. I, I feel like everything that's contained in the trailer happens in the first 15 minutes. Sure, right. I okay. have to tell you, I arrived four minutes late to my screening, right? And David Bautista is already outside the house talking to the actress that plays your daughter in the film. And I'm thinking, did this start at 6.30 and I'm here late? I was like, something must be You missed those front end credits. But then I realized that the movie just gets started right away. Yeah, yeah. It's a a runaway train. But like the knock at the cabin, you know, the titular knock, happens really early on. Really early on. Yeah, there is is quite a long, a significant scene between Dave and Kristen, Leonard and Wen. Then it's... Pow. Okay, let's back up a bit, though, because it's been a minute since I've had a Brit on Shut Up Evan. Okay. <laughs> and I'm currently obsessed with something within British culture, and so I just wanted to get a temperature read on, if you're oh aware God, of it. I hope I'm aware of it. Yeah, I bet okay. you're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to disappoint you. Um, okay. Are you aware of The Traitors? Tra- oh, The Traitors. The Traitors. got to put that T in there. Traitors. Sorry, Traitors. Um, yes. I am aware of it. I watched the first episode. Okay. And was like, this is going to be so deep. But I haven't sat down. Do you know why? I've, I, and this will disappoint you as well. It's that over the Christmas, I decided that... <laughs> this is going to sound very highfalutin and snobbish. That I, that I wasn't going to watch any... I wasn't going to watch much reality TV this year. That I was going to try and watch more films, more of the things of the kind of things that I should be enriching my mind with, the things that I want to do. And so I put it on and was like, this is going to lose me hours of my life. And then, and loved it, but didn't, thought, no. 
discipline. Can I rebuttal? Yes. So I do think there's a, a differentiator between reality television and reality competition because uh-huh. I think reality competition, which is what the traders would fall under, mm-hmm. has more of a framework with how things are done and there's more of an ability from the producers to control what is happening. Right. And I think that sort of changes the experience because I think the frivolity that's often associated with reality TV I don't think is comparable to reality competition. Right, okay. Yes, I'll take that rebuttal. But that also wasn't me slandering against reality TV. That was just me kind of going, oh, I should I should just, um, I should watch more films because, like, I'm an actor. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a fervent reality television viewer, I take no offense. Okay, I, I good. understand. Good, I'm glad. I also would argue that, like, I too, as, as a fervent viewer, should watch less and be engaging in other art forms, which I am. I watched Tar last night. Okay, but that okay. aside. Okay, but that aside. <laughs> I was told by British friends of mine, because uh-huh. there's now an American Traders. Right. And it's, I would say, I would say the Traders UK, I would give a 98 out of 100 in terms of a season of television. I'm halfway through the US Traders and I would give it like an 80 out of 100. Like oh, it's a really, less. really good, but yeah, but, but less. And what British friends of mine were telling me was that there's a sensibility within UK competition where it's just less cutthroat. Like that's a big part of British reality television. Mm. And they were explaining to me like on Big Brother UK, for instance, you are penalized for strategizing. Yeah, there's this whole thing about being genuine. Like being genuine, not being two-faced. I think that's a real, yeah, that is quite a thing in, in, in British culture, in, um, in British reality TV. Obviously, the entire thing is full of that, right? That's one thing I did think. I was like, this looks so stressful. And what I loved was seeing some of the people who clearly wanted to be the traitors who weren't the traitors. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I was like, oh, look at those little bitches that have gone in there being like, <laughs> I want to be the traitor. I want to, like, kill people off. And then they've had to just be the, what were the normal people called? Not the traitors, the faithful. The faithful. The faithful. That some people were so gutted to be faithfuls. It makes more sense as a traitor. You have a better chance of winning. However... You gotta watch. You got to watch. Okay. I say, sorry, I just watch it. UK season one. I would put it in the pantheon of great seasons of reality competition of all time. Wow. Okay. And you are a voice to trust in that. I mean, I'm not saying that. You're saying that, but I trust you. <laughs> no, I'm saying it. And you're making me say it because I'm on a podcast with you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I brought you here. Okay. So let's talk about this movie, Knock at the Cabin. I'm extremely excited to talk about it because I'm a big fan of the book. I just saw the movie. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan of Groff's, as you know a big fan of this whole cast obviously love m night blah 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 blah. before we get into it can you describe for me in your words what this film is about i knew you were gonna get me to do the pitch and it's so early on in the press tour that i'm so still so bad at the pitch um yeah but don't give me the pitch like ben talking to evan what's this movie about i don't know that's that's slightly different great for me it's about love which is gonna sound a little cheesy um but the love of a family um and then it's about belief it's about truth it's about how hard the truth is to find in our current uh current climate i think but i know it's i know it sounds ridiculous and cheesy and a bit alternative but really m night was so insistent and told me specifically me before uh, most takes he'd be like think about love think about how much you love eric and when even though I don't think you'd watch it and be like, it's a love story. <laughs> um, I do think for me, it felt like that's what I was playing constantly the whole time. You get the script for this, obviously Knight uh, has a big reputation in this industry and, and some incredible, incredible films. What did that feel like from your perspective to know that you were going to be leading a film that 
you know, has this known director, it's from a known IP, huge cast attached to the film. What did that feel like? It felt incredibly exciting. It also felt very daunting. Like I, I, I had audition. I got sent this the scenes, just the scenes. Obviously not the script because everything is shrouded in secrecy. Put an audition tape together. A week later, heard that Knight wanted to do a Zoom with me. I was on Zoom with him for an hour and forty five minutes, like workshopping the scenes. He wouldn't give me any more information on what the story was about. Um, he gave me a little bit more information about Andrew, but he was like, you've got enough. I just need to, I just need to see, I need to test you. I need to talk to you as a person. I need to see if I can make this film with you. And then three days later, he called me and he was like, I want you to be playing. I want you to play Andrew. You have a link that I'm sending to you now. You have 24 hours to press the link. You have six hours before the link explodes and expires. And then please make a decision quickly. <laughs> Basically, so I've honestly never been so daunted reading something. It was unfold. It's un- it unfolds very slowly as it does in the book, and I was like reading. It, it was incredibly dark, incredibly violent. Mm-hmm. What is this? What is going to happen? I also didn't know the size of the part. I, I had no idea, and I was like, okay, Andrew is talking a lot. Yeah, this is amazing. This is amazing. But I was, I was, I was scared. Genuinely, I was like, oh my god, are we? Are how are we going to pull this off? Are we going to pull this off? Mm. Um, and you really just have to like trust night. Can you talk about the process of working with Knight as it compares to other directors that you've worked with in the past? It's like nothing I've ever done before. Super specific. He is. He has seen the entire film in his head, first and foremost. He's envisioned it moment to moment. Then he transposes that into a storyboard. And then really, as an actor, you are kind of joining the process in to kind of slot in and facilitate that that image that, that that kind of vision that he has had it's all about and what he's obsessed with is the audience that are going to watch it i've never worked with a director who is like constantly referring to the movie theater and how they're going to react and what he wants them to be feeling at this point and he really he really is obsessed with that he's obsessed with the audience feeling what his characters are feeling so he wants them to be thrilled excited terrified he wants them to feel love he wants you to completely go on the journey of the film he also loves his characters in a way that like that f- they feel like they're his it's strangely not collaborative because you're it's this precise uber precise kind of choreography of the camera and it's it's like precision acting it's like nothing i've done before and the the film i've done just before was spoiler alert with michael showalter who and it was so much of it, so much of it was improvised it was deeply collaborative we were workshopping scripts all the time he's chucking in alts and ideas and so for me to swing to from one extreme to the other, I was like, "Whoa!" It was it was a real shock um, to the system. But I kind of was like, "Okay, yeah, I'm I'm on board this." And he, you know, I'm a fan of his other films, and was like, he he absolutely knows what he's doing. On the other side of the industry, as a consumer and that listens to a lot of actors and directors speak, and also I went to NYU to School of the Arts, and like collaboration was held up as like the best way to work. And I know you come from a theater background and a big tent pole of theater often is the collaborative nature of the art form. Yeah. But I think what's cool from your perspective, having worked with other directors in the past, and as you mentioned, Michael Showalter just, you know, months earlier in this collaborative setting, I think how cool is it to then have an experience where you come in with someone who is not collaborative, but that's not to the detriment of the process. It's rather that they are so certain of their best practice as a director that they come in and then they just execute on that. 
that can be really reassuring, actually. He's simplifying the process for you. And if you're an actor with like lots of ideas and impulses and you want to try stuff out and you want to walk over here, then then you will find it a challenge walking or walk over here or, or say this line like this way. You, you'll find it a challenge working with him because because really you are you're there to execute and understand exactly what he likes, how he likes it. But yeah, I, I loved it. I think coming from mostly over the last 15 years, 15 years, 15 years, that's, a, that's not a, Hey, I've been doing it 15 years. I'm not young. Um, uh, I've I've worked mostly in in TV, which has which I love, absolutely love, and it's a really well oiled machine. TV making, I think, and it's not necessarily a director's medium. Um, so I've always been really excited ever ever I have had the opportunity to work with a director who has a process, and he really has a process, and that's a really exciting thing to kind of be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get on board and I'll do this your way you know mm. um what did you study at tish uh theater directing did you yeah do you ever direct not beyond college but it is an aspiration of mine yeah. in the distant future yeah or, yeah or the not so distant i mean obviously love interacting with actors that's what i do a lot on this podcast but yeah, yeah i um i loved theater directing what i found and this is not a diss to the art form yeah i found that there are more in my experience at Tish, there are more people making theater than there are seeing theater, mm. <laughs> and I think that's something that the fashion industry was very was sort of the antithesis of that, right? It's like everyone interacts with fashion, whether consciously or not. Right, you know, yeah. they have to make decisions about what they wear every day. So I got sort of soured on theater for a bit, but then I have experiences like last year seeing Groff do the 15th anniversary of Spring Awakening live, and all of a sudden I'm like. What am I doing with my life? Why am I not doing this? Right. So you're kind of re-inspired by that. Yeah. I tried to get tickets for that. It was tough. I was, yeah, I was I was doing spoiler alert over here and working with, um, do you know Nikki M. James? She was in- Yes, yes of course. Yeah. yeah. So, and so Nikki's in spoiler alert and she also, she workshopped Spring Awakening in its early, early days. Mm. And I am a super fan of it because I, and this is how I first came across Jonathan as well. When I was in my final year of drama school, I did 12 auditions for 12 rounds for the transfer of uh, Spring Awakening from Broadway to the West End to play Melchior. So, and then, and did like, I know it's really, it's really sad for actors to talk about parts they didn't get, <laughs> um, but it's, it's relevant. But um, yeah, so I, the first time I ever come across him was that I was listening to that score on the loop. learning to sing the part from him which was kind of weird full circle to then be working with him that many years later I didn't get the part but that is where that's where I first came across Jonathan how did I get there I don't know, but I'm glad you did because I <laughs> I wanted to to bring in I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to bring in a question from the man, the myth, the legend, Jonathan Groff. Okay. Hi, Ben Aldridge. This is your old friend, Jonathan Groff, and uh, my question for you today is: uh, What is the song that you are most consistently singing in the shower and? Would you please bless our ears with several bars of that song right now, please? Oh, God. 
I'm quaking in my boots. I am not singing on this podcast. Oh, please. <laughs> no, I will feel so self-conscious. Um, I don't have, what is the most consistent? I sing in the shower a lot. Yeah, I but would... I feel like he was leading us to a specific song. Oh, do you think he was? That's such a specific question to ask. He had that little twinkle. Wait, so you, d- you didn't tell him to ask that? No, I never prompt guests. Yeah. Oh, wow. And the implication of this question, too, is that somehow he was in proximity of you while you were showering. I just want to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, she's had it. She's had it an extra layer there. I'm not so sure about that. But, um, but yeah, what am I? What am I singing? Karaoke go-to's are Alanis Morissette songs. Jagged Little Jagged Little Pill was the first ever record I owned. Is there anything, you know, dare I say, a little bit more subversive than Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill, that would be, like, something you'd be singing in the shower? <laughs> Do you just mean a bit cooler? No. Oh, my God. No. I feel like that's, like, the pinnacle of cool, but it's just, like, not an unexpected yeah. thing to be singing in the shower. Yeah. Um... Wow, I love it. This is the thing that really stumps you. It really stumps me because I can't, there's nothing ever specific. I'm often just like scatting in the shower, like improvising, just giving you some baba dabba doos and um <laughs> and uh, testing out my falsetto and stuff. This morning I was singing um, Frank Ocean "Lost," Lost but a, a Jordan Reckai cover of that. Do you know how there's that, I think it's the third or fourth time that he sings the chorus and he changes that one note in yes. that song? Yes. I love that. You are the opposite of me. You like know the tiny moments of everything. Well, that's something I'm really captured by like in the songwriting process, how you just choose to like revisit that chorus and you're just right. like, let's just tweak that one note. Right, yeah. Okay, so we spoke about Knight. Uh, another, you know, incredible person that you've been afforded the opportunity to collaborate with is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I think it's so interesting that you're in scenes with her and she is both the writer and creator of the show, the show in question being Fleabag. Can you talk about what that process was like? I imagine it would be slightly intimidating to work with Phoebe Waller-Bridge to begin with, but then I just think there's some added pressure in any sense of being an actor working opposite the creator. We didn't know what it was going to become. It's one of the few things in my life that I haven't had to audition for. Um, and I think that's because Phoebe had seen me in a production of American Psycho where I was playing an asshole. And so I'm told this is where she kind of saw me in. And we knew each other t- a tiny bit socially. And then I then I was just sent the scripts and read the scripts. And I was like, these are some of the funniest things I have ever read. And was also very excited because up until that point, I'd played like quite a few like romantic straight leads they were quite like noble people like they were slightly edgeless and I was like yes this is gonna be this is I'm so grateful for this opportunity to play such a dick so for those people that don't know though can Mm. you describe a little bit about your character on Fleabag and what made him so quirky (laughs) quirky cute um so his he's his name is asshole guy oh you pronounce it asshole guy Asshole guy, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I guess I hear it. Ass, yeah, yeah, rather okay. than ass. Asshole, yeah. or maybe asshole. No, no, no asshole. it's written as A-R-S-E. Yeah, asshole. It yeah. just rolls off the tongue on you. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, okay. That asshole runs off the tongue. <laughs> um, yeah, so I play asshole guy, and uh, in the first, I think it's like in the opener of the first episode, I arrive at her house, we have anal sex, and uh, that's basically my role in it throughout the entire first season, is having sex with her. He says Last night was incredible. Which you think is an overstatement. But then he goes on to say that... It was particularly special because uh, I've never managed to actually 
up the bum with anyone before. He's a guy who's like completely self-obsessed, completely. I remember her saying to me on the set one day, he's someone who is completely obsessed by the inner workings of his own interior landscape. Mm. Um, it was intimidating slightly because I was discovering the part alongside her whilst we were doing it, I think. And I was a bit like, ooh, I'm not quite sure. And there's Olivia Coleman. Oh, my God, I love Olivia Coleman. Um, being in that show, even though it is collaborative in a sense, it's it's completely Phoebe's. It's Phoebe's mind. It's Phoebe's genius. It came from the genius of her one-woman one show before. So I don't know, being in it, if anyone ever kind of like compliments it or says they're a fan, I don't... I in no way feel any responsibility for it. I'm just like, that's that that's all hers, you know. And I feel the same for anything I did in it as well. Like she she really like guided me and I think all of us through what she wanted. And I know that um asshole, asshole guy, you know, I think there are flavours of people that she from her real life that are, not that she's mentioned any names, of course she wouldn't. Um, but there are flavours. There are flavours of asshole <laughs> in asshole guy from lots of different people. I think, but yeah, I, and I would jump to do anything with her again. She is. She's brilliant. She's kind. She's lovely. She's funny. Um, yeah, she's the best. You know, there's a character. I think it's like season one, episode four or five of Sex and the City, when we are introduced to Up the Butt Guy, which is a guy who wants to fuck Charlotte up the butt. There's a famous scene where the four ladies are in the back of a cab, and she smoke. Carrie starts smoking a cigarette. The cab driver's like, "You have to put that out, ma'am." And she goes, "We're talking up the butt, sir." Sir, we're talking up the butt. A cigarette is in order. Your character, Arsol guy, or see, see, when I say it, it's like it I liked so- it though. You put the R in. No, I know. Arsol like- <laughs> sounds a little bit Irish. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> but your character, I feel like, is the successor, if not just the continuation of, of this character, first introduced in 1998 on HBO. <gasps> oh my god, I am I am so pleased to hear that, that you've managed to make that connection. <laughs> I loved Sex and the City when I was younger. Me and a girlfriend of mine at school used to um, write each other letters as big and as Samantha. Weirdly. You were big. I was big, and she was Samantha, and that was our, they were our code names for each other. And we would we would both watch Sex and the City. I'm learning all these code names today. Yeah, asshole. Asshole's not really a code <laughs> name. Although, yeah, she, Phoebe doesn't name any of her characters by by their real names. It's all by coded kind of weird nicknames. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we were, you know, we brought Groff into the conversation earlier. So I was speaking to Groff this morning because he just stayed at this resort upstate that I had stayed at previously. And I asked Groff if he would review the the place for me. And so he left me this long voice memo walking me through his thoughts on all the various parts of it. Did you recommend the place for him to stay at? No, so he happened to, he he was like, you know, he just finished his run of Merrily We Roll Along Uh and we're talking. He's like, oh, I'm going upstate. I'm staying at this place. And I was like, oh, I just stayed there. And I had really strong opinions about the place. Evan with a strong opinion. Yeah, right? Never happens. <laughs> I told him, I was like, you have to get the arancini, which he got. But I was like, you, and I was like, but please tell me because I want to either feel like my my thoughts and reactions are corroborated or I'm always open to the counterpoint, but I want to hear it, you know. You want to hear it. Yeah, I want to yeah. hear Exactly. Give it to you. So he left me this long review. So anyway, I bring that up to say, are you someone, because you know, you're traveling a lot, you're on a press tour right now, right? Like you are having to stay at lots of different places, experience lots of different cities. And so when it comes to the accommodations, are you someone that has strong opinions about what what you look for in an accommodation? Yeah, I think I am. I like something cozy. Mm-hmm. And my own apartment in London is just like, uber uber cozy and and I don't mean that like I haven't got like blankets and throws everywhere and it's not kind of like you know that kind of Malibu whites and creams and shells um it's it's um it's just yeah I just want to be I want to be somewhere where I can relax 
basically that kind of home away from home. I don't want anything too showy, too fancy. One thing that Graf described this place as, which has stayed with me, is he said that he felt that it was more vibe than experienced in terms of the people that created it. And that really resonated for me. He really went there with the review, didn't he? Yeah, great, and I really great appreciate description. It. Yeah, but it's like, I get it. I, and I said to him, I was mm. like, I feel like that's so much of the times we're living in right now. Yes. Beyond just hotel where things are vibes and not experiences. Right. And I crave an experience. Yeah. Well, yeah, what do you like in a, in a hotel? So I care a lot about breakfast. Yeah, right. Uh, I care about how it's displayed, what's displayed. Mm. I particularly care about breakfast service because when I wake up, I'm like reigniting my will to live. And so I want someone that's like in it with me to sort of yeah. like, you know, set the temperature for the day. You, and want, I have a re- to say, you want a reason to live. You, I, I yeah. need a reason to live. Yeah. And I have to say, we were just staying at this lovely hotel in Paris. My partner and I, he loves waffles. Oh, oh. this is going to be fun. We can stay up late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning... I'm making waffles. It's like a big part of his personality. Like Buffy is a part of my personality. Waffles are his. They don't have any on the menu. And our server, who like came to know us by the end of our stay because we had her every morning, which I like that too. I like yes, consistency. Nice with, yes, familiarity. Yes, yes. But we woke up the next day. We're at breakfast. They don't have waffles on the menu. She comes over and she goes, chef can make you a waffle. Would you like a waffle? This Above morning? and beyond. Above and beyond. Yeah, that's what you need. That I need. Yeah. I don't want, I need. Yeah, I don't think I experienced that very often, but I'd also don't know if I'd have the audacity to kind of uh, uh, to, to infer that that's that was my want. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how did you how did you get that little waffle moment in there? Was he just like, oh god? And you were like, eh, he's just not happy. There are no waffles on the menu. It's his waffle. I don't actually know how it came up. I think maybe she just intuited it. She did. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'd love it if she did. This no, French but... bitch just being like, do you need some waffles for your trip? Um, I'm really like, thank you. You understood. Yeah. <laughs> were you there for Fashion Week? I was, yeah. Was it glorious? I really had a good time there. Oh, good, yeah. So uh, beautiful. I was there for New Year's and just had a lovely couple of days just wandering around the streets pretty much solo. My friend of mine was in a production of Cabaret and went over to see it um, mm. for New Year's Eve. But, like, it's such a gorgeous city just to wander. It is. And, you know, I had never been there this time of year. And at first I was like, ugh, I'm leaving this crummy weather in New York to have mm. the same crummy weather over there. And then I sort of, you know, shifted my thinking and decided that this weather is actually, like, wonderful and this is a perfect time to go. Yeah. And also, like, crummy weather but maybe a bit chicer. Not no. Not no, not no. And with waffles. With waffles. And I also just love espresso culture in Europe. Yeah. Here it's all about the coffee. That is the place, isn't it? Just to do that. Yeah. Okay, so going back to Knock at the Cabin, zeroing in on the horror aspect of it, I'm a huge horror movie buff. That's originally what attracted me to this book and then uh, by proxy the film. Are you a horror movie person? In my teenage years, I kind of was. Like, I had a group, my group of friends, who are still very good friends of mine now, we would like, I mean, we loved, like, the Scream films, the franchises, like, I know you did last summer. We also loved some, like, horror B-movies, of which I can't remember titles, but we always joked, like, something of the killer clowns and, like, some quite kind of obscure things. We lived a bit of, like, a weird teenage fantasy as well. We would go to, like, um, as inspired by Scream, etc., would um, go into like abandoned properties mm. um, in our area and like scare us, scare ourselves, and end up like running, <laughs> running away and stuff. And we also played, you know, um, did you watch Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Of course. We played a very similar game to that, called, but it was it was called Murder. Everyone had to hide, and the murderer had a, um, I don't know, what we call it a thing of lipstick. What is that? What do you call a lipstick? A lipstick? Tube. Of lipstick? A tube. A tube. There we go. Tube. A tube of lipstick. And you, they had to hunt for the hidden people. If you got lipstick on your body, 
then you were dead. And we were too old to play games like this. We were like 15, 16, which I think is a bit beyond the kind of fantasy. Was this like age. a sober activity or like there was alcohol? Involved? No, there was there, there would definitely be okay. alcohol involved. Yeah, there would be in a, it would be in like one of, in fact it, it it first took place I think at my house when my parents were away for the weekend. My parents they when they came back, they <laughs> my mom was like why is that? Why is there lipstick over the? Why the lipstick on the? We had like wooden doors. It was a Victorian house. She was like, "Why is there lipstick on the skirting boards and on the floors?" And like, and in that moment, you came out. And then I said, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm just very bad at applying it. I can, I miss my lips. Um, I love that when you do the gay voice, you go to America. I know. I don't know why it happens. I, that's that's been doing that since I was younger. Um, but uh, yeah, but horror films, yes. Into did I ever have a desire? to act in one probably the opposite I, I always imagined that you you are having to suspend your own disbelief so much or um, invest in a moment that really isn't happening in a horror film yeah. and I think my interest as an actor is always to like to connect to something or another person in a very human way and I always thought that horror films like that if you get good acting in horror films I'm like it's such good acting because they are having to do so much imagination of these incredibly heightened circumstances on top of that and so I don't think I've ever sat there and been like you know what, I think I'd be really good at that. But um, this was something that kind of offered both those things, actually. It was all about connection and then all about these, like, insane circumstances mm. and stakes layered on top. So, so yeah, it really tested my, tested my metal, I think. I do think there's some sort of reckoning that's going to happen around the way in which, like, governing bodies of award shows recognize horror film acting. And I feel like Mia Goth's performance in Pearl is going to be the start of something because there was talk about whether or not she could even be on shortlists and, right. and the nominations didn't end up happening for her. But, like, as Mia's status as a horror icon continues to grow and you these actors like Jenna Ortega, for instance, who's really so making a name good. for herself in the genre, I'm curious if more respect can be put on it. To your point, I mean, I think about um, Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby and, like, that right. performance is up there with the great performances. And someone like, is it um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead? <sighs> She's, like, so good. Mm. And, um, speaking my yeah, I agree with you. Hasn't, hasn't had that recognition because she's done a lot of genre. Well, I think Toni Collette's performance in Hereditary was also one that many believed at the time was going to get awards recognition and didn't because I think a lot of, again, the people that are choosing who who gets in, who gets out, don't view uh, horror as legitimate. But I, yeah. I'm hoping that can turn. That's so interesting because if like Ari Aster were to make that film now with Toni Collette, absolutely, I think she would be... But it was, it was almost like the beginning of his... You know, everyone waking up to him as well. Yeah. So we're talking about 15-year-old you playing a version of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Um, what was young Ben like? Oh. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Going back. Um, oh, he shifts his body language from one side <laughs> to the to other. To the other. He gets a bit defensive. <laughs> um, what was young Ben like? Uh I was obsessed with my friends. My friends were like a very, a very important, I don't know, refuge, I suppose, for me in, in high school. And we, there are these uh, twin best friends of mine, Abby and Fran, and um, a group of us, the, the people that used to play murder and, and break into houses and scare ourselves. And uh, I think I was quite self-conscious. I was, um, I, I was so passionate about acting and dancing and singing was very aware kind of where that positioned me and was quite bullied for those things so I think I was very I was navigating a lot of shame from very very early on and yeah I I, I was just I was very busy as well because I was like in theatre school like three evenings a week 
Um, I was dancing at the weekends. I was like, yeah, I was just, I was like a classic little gay boy, really. But also, also, also someone who was like trying not to be that. Was the effort that you didn't want to be gay or you didn't want to, for people to define who you are as just being gay? I didn't want to be gay. Yeah, I think I knew from the age of eight that uh, that's when I first remember kind of clocking that attraction. And I grew up in the church as well. I grew up in an evangelical church. And I don't think this was just a UK thing, but the word gay was the word for shit. It was the word for, for crap. It was the word for anything bad was like, oh, that's gay. And then I also found myself at age eight always being called gay as well. And I think children, you know, children can be incredibly cruel, but they're also kind of truth speakers. And I think a lot of the time people were just saying what they were seeing and trying to make sense of, you know, I didn't play football. I was, when it came to like picking teams for football, I, I, I would sometimes, this is tragic, but I would sometimes volunteer or be picked to be the goalpost, like just literally sit to sit there rather than because I just couldn't play football and I but I desperately wanted to be this normal sporty boy even though I loved the things I, uh, that I did singing and dancing and acting I also really punished myself for being good at them I kept them very quiet from people I, I yeah I just wished to be this like normal regular kid a lot of the time um, and I was afraid of I was I didn't know enough about what being gay was. I I still believed even though I had these feelings that it could be something I could control. I could choose a different pathway and that's because I wasn't seeing anything that I could relate to in front of me that that, that was relatable that um you know broke back was the first mountain I the first mountain the first mountain I climbed. <laughs> um, broke back was the first film I saw where I saw two men in love. And obviously that ends in a horrible way. But I didn't, I really didn't know about men loving men. And um, yeah, I kind of, kind of look back on that time as I was, uh, I was all at once kind of happy, outwardly happy kid. And then like very much internally a place of deep, deep struggle, I think. I think that's often so much of the story of young people, young people, young queer people in particular. Yeah. Is this sort of contrast of who we present as and then who we were inside. And also, you know, you're talking about this idea of this this shame. And I think so much of my experience and what I've learned over the years that it's such a shared experience is this idea of like, we're both figuring out who we are and we're having to unlearn the idea that who we are is bad. Yes. And those two things are happening often at the same time, but at different speeds. I had to unlearn that it was bad. And then in my 20s, I would say, even come to learn that it was good. And that shift yeah. is much more gradual. And, and I think that's something I I hope that more queer people will talk about. Yeah, um, and, absolutely. And uh, understand about themselves, commiserate with one another about. You know, we're talking about gayness. I also want to talk about grief for a second because it's something I am immersed in at the moment. And I... Made an effort when I got back. Uh, my dad died recently. I'm I came, so sorry. I came back here. I don't know what to say when people say that, by the way. Do I say thank you? No, you don't, I don't think you have to yeah, say anything. Just it's just acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because yeah. I, I give you a nod. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you gave me, you gave me a nod. <laughs> um, but I came back and I was like, okay, well, I'm back from all the stuff that I was doing at home with regards to you know his memorial service and whatnot. And I was like, I'll get back into the swing of things. And I was on the phone w uh, with the friend recently and she was like, you know, it's just so impressive how you were able just to you know get things going again and we got off the phone and I I just kept thinking about that word impressive and how like sad it made me to impress someone by my ability to not 
show like what I'm mm. really going through. Like I, I decided that I was like, okay, I'm done with grief, so I'll resume life. Right. Since that conversation, that was Tuesday. It's now Saturday. I've made it sort of an effort to try and examine my grief a mm, bit more yeah. and like be in it versus over it or like, you know, above it in some sense. And anyway, so I bring it up to ask you, uh, what's been your experience in your life with that's really interesting listening to you talk there. My, my one of my closest friends lost his uh, his father two weeks ago now, and I've been on the phone to him a uh, f- fair amount. And um, yeah, we've we've been speaking about grief, Adam and I, and just like the the non-linearness of it all and the shoulds. He was he was kind of examining if he should feel a certain way and and, and comparing how he's feeling to his other family members. And I was just saying I don't. I think just be open to feeling what you're feeling at any time and not to push it away and not to try and like be like, oh, yep, I had that cry. That's done now. Yeah. And I think I feel that way about feeling in, in general is that I often feel like I've conquered something or like with my therapist, I'm like, yeah, check check that off. That's done. Shame's back in its box. And it kind of relates to what we we're talking about earlier with the kind of gay narrative is that it's always shifting. Things aren't tidied away and you just have part of this uh, human experience of being here is and something I think I feel like I've really worked on over the last year we are obsessed we're in a happiness trap of like life should f- feel continuously good we are drawn to it feeling amazing all the time we do everything we can in terms of consumerism or all of this kind of uh, not not positive toxic culture but like we we really do always want to feel good but I think we have to get comfortable with like that just isn't what life is it like it is the entirety of it, all of those feelings. And something I'm trying to be more open to myself with is like, just being like, okay, yeah, this doesn't feel good right now. And the less tension I create in myself, the less I fight that, the less I'm like, oh, I don't want to feel like this. If I'm kind of like, right, I don't feel like, I feel like this right now. I'll move through it at some point. It's kind of like, like bad weather and just kind of, and just kind of going, yeah. And that's, and all those contrasts, I think are what, you know, this is, you know, cliche, but what makes life beautiful? And, um, yeah, grief feels like it's a, a complex one, as does shame, I think. Like, I, mm. I, I always think I've yeah. moved beyond that and then something can reshame me mm-hmm. or I can realise I feel uncomfortable about something and that's, you know, to live a very long time. I didn't come out until I was 25, didn't kiss a guy until I was 23 to to live in that deep shame for that long it's not just going to be conquered easily it's going to it's going to it's got like deep roots in yeah. you and I think those you're going to keep coming back to having to rework on that that was a long and deep answer to your question <laughs> I think it was it's a deep conversation yeah grief, you know what I was listening to Anderson Cooper's fantastic podcast about grief if you haven't listened to it you gotta listen to it yeah the, I will the level of emotional vulnerability that he displays is so admirable but anyway one thing that he says is that many people have experienced grief and if you haven't you will and yeah. I just love that framework because that's why I'm trying to integrate it to become a question I ask all my guests now yeah. because it's like you've either had an experience with it or perhaps a tangential one, or you will. And, yeah. and I think even that preparation that some people do ahead of grief is like that's that's a part of grief. Like yeah. there's just it's it's very it's a it's all encompassing in so many ways. And it's our one certainty, isn't it? It's it's the one certainty is that we are going to grieve for the people that we love the most. I think that about wedding days are so beautiful, and I'm always so astounded. I, I haven't um, I haven't been married yet. I'm always a so astounded that people have like found that person to to commit to and then i am and it's beautiful and then i go wow you also are 
committing to watching that person leave you as well in mm. in death. It's the one certainty. We're all gonna die, bitch. We're all gonna die. <laughs> so you said uh, didn't come out till twenty five. Yeah. First kiss at twenty three. Mm. Now, interestingly, you know, you play a gay character in this film, Knock at the Cabin. Yeah. You just came off of playing a gay character in your last film. So, yeah. And you've played gay characters before that. Mm. Um. So let me ask because you know. You have Spoiler Alert, which is a big gay rom-drom. And then you have Knock of the Cabin, which I think could be described as a gay apocalyptic psychological thriller. It's a bit of like, you know, it doesn't come off the tongue easily. And, you know, it's interesting because we, outside of the industry, often hear from out gay actors talking about how in their careers uh, they didn't want to play gay because they didn't want to be boxed in. And yet I was thinking about it. It's interesting. You have someone like you who has not shied away from it. You have your two last romantic co-stars, Jim Parsons and Jonathan Groff, both of whom are notable for the fact that they are both very comfortable playing gay and very comfortable playing not gay. And it hasn't hindered any of the three of your careers. And I'm wondering... Did you ever have a reticence in this? You know, we're talking about the fact that shame exists, the the deep roots of shame. I imagine that might have found its way into your career choices. Oh, God, yeah. I left drama school at 21. I I would never have thought I'd be here openly and proudly playing these parts and talking about them, or even that that a movie like this might exist. Like, and that's less than... That's 15 years ago. I suppose my 20s were really about escaping who I thought I might be and I had fear that I might be and and I think acting was partly a way of like um of of like proving to myself that I could play straight that I could be serious I, that I could be taken seriously doing that and I have just learned through osmosis that and through things I'd read you know um Rupert Everett famously talking about in his book that coming out completely ruined his career and there weren't many examples and I feel like there were less examples of British actors who were navigating that in a successful way and I remember I had a few friends who were also gay who were actors and it was just like decided upon that we wouldn't talk about our boyfriends at work I felt so protective over it I definitely thought that it would um, impact my career in a negative way and that I wouldn't work as much and that I wouldn't ever work playing straight parts um and I think three years ago when I decided to... It's weird calling it coming out because I was already out in my personal life mm-hmm. and, and I by that point, if, if I was on set, I wouldn't ever be not talking about it. But I just hadn't publicly shared, I hadn't publicly claimed my identity and I think I'd prefer it. It just got to the point where it felt weird. I think because of Fleabag, I was on a, a long-running BBC show called Our Girl where I played this kind of like alpha male army captain and um, that had generated a certain kind of response from people who, from from women really, who watched those shows. And I was just a bit like, oh, I think I think people think that I'm those men. And that's fine. I'm all for actors having ambiguity and that being helpful, actually, because the less you know about us, the more you can believe in us playing mm-hmm. other things. But it's, the, the, the climate has changed is changed I think with that and um, I just felt like yeah I need I need people to know who I really am Mm. on pressing that button on Instagram it just like my shoulders dropped I didn't even realize how significant that would be to me I felt like I was like breathing proper air I was had been holding on to something for so long and potentially conveniently hiding behind something as well for the sake of my career 
So the White Lotus star Theo James was recently on Watch What Happens Live, and he was asked about a George Michael biopic and whether or not he'd be interested in the role. He said yes. This generated a ton of headlines being like, Theo James wants to play George Michael. I bring this up for one reason, which I'll make obvious, but also because I think that you would be in contention for this biopic that is not actually real, but that we are materializing somehow. But anyway, there was a huge blowback once the story got picked up because the assumption is that until an actor comes out publicly that they are living some kind of lie. So this, you know, and also Theo James has a wife and Mm. for all that we know, and again, as you're pointing out, actors have no reason to fill us in on anything about their lives, particularly their sexuality. But there was this assumption that Theo James must be straight and then that reignited a conversation that sort of continues to be put on play and then pause and then play and then pause, which is should straight actors be allowed to play queer parts and particularly in this case, you know, depict an openly bisexual man. Yeah. But then I just watched Tar last night, as I said, Mm -hmm. and Cate Blanchett is not publicly out. And I I don't even know the correct nomenclature to use because that implies that I think that she might be queer but not out, but she's never publicly identified as straight because that's not something we expect. So I don't even know how to talk about it. But anyway, the presumption is that someone like Cate Blanchett is straight and she's playing Lydia Tar, who is Mm -hmm. like, for anyone that hasn't seen Tar, Run Don't Walk. She's the gayest gay character that's ever been oh, written. Yes, Kate Blanchett. Um, I would say gayer than Knock at the Cabin, I'm sorry, I gotta say. Gayer. Wow, gayer than Knock at the Cabin. Wow. Uh, no, but uh, it's so gay, but but because she's so fantastic and transformative in the role, no, there's not a similar discourse. And I'm just wondering, where are you at on the conversation around should straight actors be afforded the opportunity to play gay parts? Firstly... I would absolutely throw my towel into the George Michael ring, even though the film isn't happening. But when I saw that, I did (laughs) text my British agent, who's a very good friend of mine, and I was like, WTF? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think think it's a really fascinating and interesting debate. And um, I have felt... um, a range of things on it at different times. And what what I think I've landed on is that I don't think there should be rules. I think rules are kind of um, in opposition to creativity, really. And and it would be a strange and kind of drastic and extreme thing to do, to be like, only, only queer people can play queer people. Um, I think ultimately acting is a creative art form and and you want to play far away from yourself you want to play stuff that's really close to yourself um, personally i've been relishing in playing stuff that is that i can connect to on a really really personal level over the last few years um but i think we're in danger of it being over policed and mm-hmm. like if someone was to turn around to me and be like no you can't play that because you're the wrong sexuality it's like we don't just want to play who we are yeah. that's that's dangerous um but that said if their queerness is integral to the story, if it's a coming out story, if it's, I don't know, a lived experience can surely benefit that. But I don't think it's essential. I think what needs to be looked at is the people um, making the film, the producers, the director, that there has to be someone with on the creative team that is close to telling that story, that it has maybe lived that. And I don't think that has to be the actor. It's interesting, though, because I think a lot of pressure is placed on explicitly gay media right now. So I think about um, Bros, which really found itself sort of wanting to be so proud of the fact that it was so queer made and that ended up sort of backfiring in the end. And then more recently, I think about this new reality show, which everyone is hating on except for me, which is called The Real Friends of WeHo. Uh Uh-huh. 
Which, by the way, just to update listeners, I just uh, finished episode two, and I would say don't stick it out, but I will be sticking it out. So if you want, if people want to DM me and talk about it, I'm happy to chat about it offline. <laughs> but that too has sort of received a lot of backlash for people saying that this show is just six gay people, and it's not the best representation for the community as a whole. Yeah. But then people like me being like, I don't look to these shows to be representation but then you have one of the cast members from that show coming out and being like isn't it so great that this show is showing six different kinds of queerness where I'm like "Mm, I don't think that's what this show's doing I think this show's just entertainment and anyway so I think that the conversation is so nuanced in terms of what queer people want from our queer representation and Mm. I have to say and you know you and I are similar ages I came up at a time, too, when, like, there was little depiction of queerness on film. And so I telegraphed, you know, characters like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, that though that became my avatar of my queerness. And yeah. that's why I think so many gay men connect to all of these powerful women, both on screen and then the actors to themselves. Because I, I not that I'm saying representation, direct representation is not important. Certainly it is. But there's ways in which seeing people that aren't you, you as a viewer, I think part of the joy of the queer brain is often our ability to imagine. Right, yeah. And I think that gets lost in some of the conversation around like, it can only, I agree with you, it's situational, but like the, the only queer people can play queer parts. I'm like, if anyone played Lydia Tarr beside Kate Blanchett, I'd be picketing. Is that the term? Yeah. I'd be outside picketing outside of whatever studio. I think there's a lot of policing that goes on because of, of what you said. We want to see the entire spectrum of queerness represented, which is, it's a large community. There are many letters to that, you know, acronym as there should be. And it's completely diverse. But we're not going to see everything represented in one film. The thirst for that I really understand, but then we can't be angry if when if every facet of it isn't included. It's still a progress that 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 content is happening. Right. That, that it's being made. There's still merit in there. I think. One thing I do want to add, though, for people that are seeing Knock at the Cabin, there's both an implicit nature of the queerness in that it's two out gay actors playing a gay couple in the film, but also there are themes throughout this film about that queerness, about shame, about fear that manifests itself. I hopefully maybe I'd love to have a longer conversation with you at some point about Knock at the Cabin. What Maybe we give it a little bit of time for people to see, but this sure. is such a hard movie to talk about because yeah. we can't talk about it. Um, but I will say, and I think this is just a little tease. I don't think this is a spoiler. One of the great things about this role, Andrew, that you play is you're both that which is being aggressed and then you become somewhat of the aggressor. Yeah. And I think you it's such an exciting role because you kind of get to move through it and... I'll just say this. I'll say this. I don't think this is a big spoiler. Tell me if you feel differently. Be like, once Andrew gets out of the cabin, it's like things get... Things get crazy. Things get spicy. Yeah. Things get really juicy and really spicy. It centers a a family, right? And they they happen to be a single-sex parent family. And it could have been any family that the the film happens to. And actually, that's kind of stated in the film as well as part of the rules of of what is happening. Um, Although, (laughs) your character Andrew has a really hard time believing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he has a hard time <laughs> believing anything in there. Yeah, Andrew um, is. He's yeah. a piece of work. Oh, God, he's a piece of work. <laughs> it was tough, let me tell you. Um, but what I, what I love is that, is that the movie isn't completely about the queer narrative for, for Eric and for Andrew. It honours it. I think it, and I love it touches upon those moments of difficulty that we've spoken about. It, it's not laboured points, but you it honours what the queer narrative is in a in a really subtle way i think without completely centering it you know night when we were on set just 
they, we we never really spoke about them being. Uh, he never laboured the point over it being two men, two fathers. You know, he just really believed in this loving family, and I think that's what he wants his audience to see. Is just like, you know, something that we say as a community all the time: love is love. And this, I I think this film for its broad and mass appeal and it being a universal backs genre film is it really does speak to that as well. Okay, I want to bring in before we go our last caller. Hi Evan, hi Ben. This is Oliver Sim from the XX. Long-time listener, first-time caller of the pod. Big fan of you both. Um cannot wait for Knock at the Cabin. I have watched that trailer religiously for the past month. But my question for you, Ben, is of three of your co-stars, Jim Parsons, Jonathan Graff, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Snog, Marry, Avoid. <laughs> I love that we're like changing the game to avoid. <laughs> it's like... It's kill, right? It's kill. I think we. I know because in the UK, I think we. I think we say avoid. Oh, and just okay. like, Wait, this lends itself to what we were saying earlier about the reality competition thing. About everything's just a little less competitive. Yes, and it's just a little bit more polite. We're just yeah. like, and you gotta avoid them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so snog, marry, kill, avoid, kill before slash avoid. Snog. Oh well. Uh, I mean, I love them all. I genuinely yeah, love them all yeah, so yeah. much. I know it's a game. It's a game. I'd have to. I'd have to marry Jonathan Groff, um, just because he's wonderful. I'd have to... I, I'm going to have to snog Jim Parsons. I'm going to have to avoid Phoebe. I'm going to avoid Phoebe on the bridge. <laughs> just in that... Yeah, that's that's what it is. All right, but she lives. Oh, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not killing that genius no, 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 yeah. yeah. She lives, and then she and then her new thing that she does for Amazon, she casts me, and, and we have a wonderful time. Okay, last question before I let you go. You know, you mentioned that you are single... Yeah. Um, I have to imagine there are many a long list of gentlemen wanting to to know you, to meet you, to go Absolutely on dates with not. you. Absolutely not. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> so what goes on in your DMs? Nothing. Genuinely. And I'm, you know, I hesitant to say it because that, but I'm, you know, I, 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 those DMs are open. But okay, no. so you're like amenable to the right gentleman coming in. Yeah. Would you be amenable to being set up on a date? Yes, not right now. It's interesting. Right now, I I have been single uh, since like June, and she's taking some time for herself. Why have you got a suggestion? I think I could. <laughs> I think I could have a few. Okay. Yeah. No, but wait. So I can you... circle back at the right time. Well, but you're not. You're based in UK. Yeah. You're not. You don't frequent New York. I've been. Oh, in... But I know some gentlemen in the UK. You've got. You've got UK friends. You said. I I've do. got. I. Um. Yeah. I. I mean. I, I do I seem to have ended up here quite often, but ultimately, yeah, I think um I think transatlantic love is quite hard, it's quite yeah. a tough road. Yeah. But um I, I I do I do love an American boy, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. That, that is it's a real thing for me. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um well thank you, Ben. Did you have a good time? I'll do I'll do another hour. Great. Okay, yeah. you'll have to come back. Yeah, I'll come back. Because we're, you know, wrapping up season four right now. We're about to go into season five and I'm looking at the list of past guests and I'm like, I want these people back. Get them back. Yeah. How many times have you done Jen Coolidge? Just once and then she called in for another episode. She called okay. in for a Molly Shannon episode. But that's another one where she's been integral in my grief process right now and I've been like, right. I could do a whole hour of Jen coming on and just... Talking about grief. Talking about grief. <sighs> yeah, that'd be fascinating. 
But then it's even like talking to Groff this morning when we were going long about the hotels. I was like, I would do an hour with Jonathan where he and I just go through our finicky nature when it comes Your to reviews. Yeah, the things we like. Yeah. But again, it's like I was his it was like six minutes and I was like, give me sixty minutes. Best six minutes of your life. Yeah. He's provided me with a lot of good minutes. I've but... been talking to you for over an hour. I mean, God. It's I true. To... Okay, so <laughs> we're wrapping this up. I'll see you on Monday at the premiere. Yes. What are you wearing? I am hesitant to tell you. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm I am I'm wearing a mez. Okay. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> By the way, love yours, Felicity K. Yes. Stylist. Yes. Not only impeccable stylist, incredible human being. So wonderful. You're working with a good one. Yeah. Wait, why are you hesitant to tell me you're wearing Hermes? Um, because someone's worn it before. Is it? Are you wearing chocolate leather? Okay. <laughs> okay. Work. <laughs> Bold, maybe, but but yeah. Anyway, yeah. Okay, I'm excited for it. Okay. I think it'll look good, and I'm. I think this is a good move, and I think you, in collaboration with Hermes, is a good. Meeting of the the human and the brand. Yeah, yeah, they're lovely. You know, that's who I was in Paris with. Oh, really? Yeah, I was with them. I've done I've done a few of their shows in, in Paris, actually. Yeah, they are. They're very lovely. All right. Well, just two gays chatting <laughs> just about Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.